Alrighty, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Park Hills Podcast. Again, if you want more about us, our church here, parkhillschurch.com is the place to go. Or you can check out our app, Park Hills Church, on any of the app stores. So Alex, hey Chris. Hey, Exodus. We're gonna, you know, we dealt with Exodus, really kind of pieces of the uh, of chunks of the beginning of Exodus. Now we're moving more toward the end. But if we're gonna really deal with Exodus, we can't we can't not talk about Yahweh, right? I, I mean, it has been the word has been used before, and I think often in the Bible, what we as English readers don't typically notice is if you see the the word Lord all capitalized, but the O-R-D is smaller than the L, but they're all caps. That is a specific word that we want to talk about. And it did show up in Genesis a couple times. However, God has not introduced himself by this name until all of a sudden in Exodus, he does so. So why don't you start there and just dive into us a little bit. Let's talk about the name of God and and what's significant about it. Yeah. So like you said, God had not introduced himself in, in that way yet. You know, obviously like Adam and Eve knew who he was, like there was some some sort of introduction (laughs) there, like, Hey God, Hey, uh, but in Exodus chapter three, verse 13, it says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your father says, sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And so this this is interesting because a lot of references to God at this point are, you know, I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. Abraham I'm the God of Isaac and of Jacob. So verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, which is Yahweh, which is I am. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God's revelation of his name is the name that we pronounce as Yahweh when he says, I am who I am. He's saying that that word is Yahweh. Now, what's what's interesting to me about this is, first of all, uh, we, and when I say we, I mean humanity, humanity. Uh, mostly comes through, this is through Jewish tradition here. Right. They have seen the name of God as so important that they thought it was a non-pronounceable word because to them, like, writing and name is important. And that's why sometimes you'll see uh, people, and this has, has bled over into some uh, Christ-following circles as well, where they'll write God's name as G slash D. Mm-hmm. And because that's important, like the name, it, the importance is, is if you were to write God's name on a piece of paper and then accidentally step on that piece of paper, right? like what are you saying about the name of God? Because name is important. In fact, in in Hebrew circles, they will uh, sometimes just call God, you know, Hashem, the name. The that's, name. Yeah. They just call him the name. And uh, kind, of, kind of funny and silly to us, but so important to them is when like, you know, we have this serial called Alphabet Serial where we have like little letters. And when they made the Hebrew version of that, they were really worried that accidentally maybe you would spell 
the name Yahweh with your right. with your you know in your cereal, and what if what if you know Ra'a evil uh, showed up after that, and you put Yahweh your God is evil in your alphabet cereal? What if your kid didn't know what he was doing? And he did that? like how, we don't want that to happen. Now they right. fix that because Yahweh has uh, uh, a hay in it, which is two separate letters, so they just didn't. You know, are there two, you know, you have to pick up your pen. Yeah, so it's, you, it's two little marks, like a, like almost like a dot on top of a J or something, right? So you, you can't make that in a cereal, so they just left it out. Right, yeah. So they're just like, oh, Good there's move. no haze. Yeah, and so now every kid who has a hay in his name is like, I can't spell my name with this. <laughs> um, but to them, that was so important of right. protecting the name. But what happened with that is when, you know, Hebrew's not written with vowels, and, and later these guys called Masoretes come in and they add vowels so that you can pronounce these words. Um, they never added vowels to this name. Right. And so we actually don't know if Yahweh is the actual pronunciation. So what we get Yahweh from is the, the term Adonai or Lord. Uh, we just took the vowels out of that and stuck them on Yahweh. And, and that's what we get. And so just what's interesting to me is I understand protecting God's name and the importance of that. But God here says, this is my name forever, and thus I shall be remembered through all generations. Right. Why don't we do that? Like, why Why in church? Like, God, the word God, right, is a title. And all the time we'll be like, oh, you know, God told me this, and praise God, and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like, let's worship God today. And that's just a title. It's not his name. And even when we say Lord, Lord, again, is just a, it's even a title in English. Like, you know, yeah. in England, we have these lords and ladies. You know, if you watch Downton Abbey, you know that there are lords and ladies just because of that TV show. And uh, You're watching Downton Abbey. Yeah, that's a good show. That's it's, fun. It's a long time ago. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, I mean, you know, praise the Lord is another title. And not that that's wrong to say that, but I'm just curious your thoughts, Chris. Why, why don't we use God's name? When he told us, remember me by this name. Yeah, I, you're asking a question that I don't know that any of us can fully answer. Uh, but I, I do know that part of the reason why God's name is not used as much as maybe we would be comfortable with is later on, there's this little thing called the Ten Commandments, right? And do not use my Lord, do not use the name in vain. And now there's been a terrific book written recently that I'll, I'll try to throw in the show notes if I remember. Uh, that deals with what's really being said there. You know, do not bear my name in vain is really what's being said. Meaning, don't run around telling everyone I'm following Yahweh when you're not actually following Yahweh. However, we've taken that to mean it shouldn't be done in vain. So to the point where Hebrew scrolls for centuries actually blotted the name out because how dare someone say the name? They don't even know if their heart is right. So if they say the name, they could be saying it in vain, and therefore then they've committed a terrible, terrible sin. So they blotted it out uh, and often said Adonai in its place, which is why they would then you know put the vowels on there like you said. And then in the middle of that, the name just kind of gets lost to tradition in history. So part of it is the reason why we don't use the name is we don't actually know how the name is pronounced. That's, that's I think, part of the discussion here. I think the other part of it is if you really trust and love God, it you are nervous about using his name inappropriately, which is why OMG is is such a big deal in today's world. You know, mm-hmm. we people want people who love God don't want it misused. And so they're so afraid of it being misused that they would then put an honorific or a title, God or you know, um, or Lord, 
over the the word and say, this is what we're going to refer to him as. But then even that, if you're using that name without actually believing in the one that you're talking about, then that's in vain. And so why would we do that even? So a big part of this is, you know, due to tradition, a big part of it is that we, we care about the name so much, and the Bible tells us to, that we're afraid of people misusing it, so we just don't use it. But you see the problem there. I mean, if, if God is saying, remember me by this name, remember me throughout all generations, God is asking for a relationship with his people, and he's looking for actual connection and to be tied in with them. That's interesting, and we kind of just throw that by the wayside. I think the other reason, and this is kind of the bigger one that you know, I'd love to have us talk about this for a minute, is this name is a weird name. Mm-hmm. So Moses, what do I call you? His response is Ehya Asher Ehya, which another way to pronounce that in a different, you know, uh, conjugation would be the word that we would use. I'm trying to think of like, is there a way to describe this without people getting totally nerded out? Um, it, it's like the word be, right? If I say I am something, I don't say I be something. If I say I am a pastor, you know what I'm talking about. But am is from the word yeah. The, the B verb, the verb of existence. Correct. So, Ehya Asher Ehya actually is saying, I am who I am. And that Ehya word then gets pulled throughout the rest of the Bible to sometimes show up as Yahweh or Ehya. And both times that that's happening, all God is saying is, I am, I am. I, I, I just am. And so there's, you know, there's been so many good papers written on this. Is that God saying he is all encompassing and he needs nothing else? I think to some extent, yeah. Is it him saying, I don't need an actual title or honorific? It's possible. It could even be him saying, I don't actually have a name. You know, Ehia uh, and Yahweh both, those letters are all the letters that sometimes aren't pronounced in other words. You know, so like pneumonia, we see that word. And if you see it, spelled correctly, you know, starts with a P and the P just disappears. All we pronounce is the N in that. Oh man, all the dads out there that call it <laughs> pneumonia. Pneumonia, right. Or belogna, right. Uh, we get in huge trouble when a word is not pronounced the way we'd expect it to, or when a letter's not pronounced the way it, sh- it would be. Every one of the letters, uh, yod hey vov hey in, in Hebrew, those are the letters that pretty much just disappear in a lot of other words. So I've even heard some people say, the word Yahweh or Ehya might actually not be pronounced. They might just be silent. It might even be like a breath that God took. And then as he breathed it out, Moses heard it and wrote it down and said, oh, that's what he is saying about himself. So in that sense, the name is so mysterious and wonderful. Why would you even try to utter it? Because you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So there's some yeah. thoughts. Yeah. And also he, you know, attaches to that. I am who I am. You know, say I am has sent me to you. Say to them, you know. Yahweh, I am right. the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And so, the, you know, he ties that into it, too, the, the history he has with his people. Like, right. And why, why would he need to explain that if he just said, well, this is my name? You know? Yeah, I am. I don't, there's no other title that befits me. I just am who I am, and you don't need to know. It, that's another yeah. possibility to how to read it, which is why it's so important when Jesus has seven I am statements in John, People are freaking out, yeah. rightfully so. Well, what, John eight, right? He comes, totally, yeah. He comes and he says, you know, who or you know, before Abraham, yeah, was, before Abraham was born, 
I am. am. And if people are like, what? And they pick up stones to stone him. The, and then the very like, next uh, verse. Yeah. It's always, whenever I do that with students and I'm sure you have too, it's just, they pick up stones to stone him. And I'm like, why did they do that? And all the kids are like, I don't, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> he just used the name of God. He just said, I was before Abraham. If you're before Abraham, there's no other way to understand you, but I am. And then he uses the very word. Uh, and so in Hebrew, you know, in Hebrew, it's, it's Yahweh or Ehya. In Greek, it's Ego, Emi. Um, which is anyway, so yeah. great. So, yeah. But also in then side notes, you know, that's where also where we get the term Jehovah from is Yahweh, but turned into Latin because, and then Greek or German. Yeah. yeah, German Because the, the Y sound in Hebrew is not in German. It's Latin. It's, it's German that it's not. Well, it's, it's, it well, started in Latin. And then yeah. by the time it gets to the Germans, the Germans, you've heard the German language. Yeah. Like if you listen to Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> talk, you know that the Germans aren't good about taking other people's languages and make it sound more beautiful. It's just more harsh. Yeah. And, 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 that, and that's super interesting, just a lot of Hebrew names. Like, you know, Solomon's name is not Solomon. That's very English. His name is Shlomo, right? Yeah. And so Jonah's name is not Jonah, it's Yonah. And Jonathan is Yonatan. You know, right. they had that yes sound, but, but right. they the Germans didn't know how to deal with that, so they just put J's. And right. so that's Yahweh and Jehovah are actually the same word. It's, that's interesting. Yeah, and the most... It, probably the most like annoying one is Jacob in the New Testament becomes James. Yeah. And then everyone's like, well, wait till you get to Spanish, right? <laughs> uh, Jacob, James, Santiago. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So anyway, uh, we can go down tons of nerd roads if we wanted to with the name of God, but totally you're the, what you're pointing out is that language as it goes through names can get twisted and changed up a little bit. Uh, right. Good times. So, all right, let's uh, let's move on to our next topic, and that is, as we go through the book of Exodus, we see uh, there's quite a few chapters on the description of this thing called the tabernacle. Yeah, and obviously this is really important to God. I think we can. It's it's easy to look through these and be like, oh, there's just so many like specifications. Well, God's concerned about the details, and He's concerned about the details on how this tabernacle is built and what it's going to symbolize. Right, He is. And there's a reason why he cares so much about the details. So we talked about this briefly, you know, a few weeks ago, the idea that God desires to dwell with his images. Like he, he made human beings and he wants to spend time with them forever. He does so by building a garden around them and they live in this garden. So then is it any surprise to us that when God says, I want to meet with you, I want to make a, a tent of meeting, I want to make a tabernacle, I want to make this place where heaven and earth are going to be combined and they're going to be connected, and you're going to come meet with me in this place and we're going to spend time together, would it be any surprise to us that the imagery that is used to build said tabernacle or said tent is garden imagery? Mm-hmm. I mean, so I'm just going to flip through and just show you a couple of different weird spots. But in, so in 28, uh, Exodus 28, the priest's garments have hems around the sides of them. And the hems have to have a golden bell and a pomegranate on both sides. And you're like, pomegranate, that's nice. It's like a piece of fruit, right? And then you move a little further and you go, the altar of incense has all of these really ornate things carved into it, right? And you've got this this bronze basin that's full of water. 
and it's beautiful. And this, it's this place where they would wash up and prepare themselves to go meet with God. And then actually in the tent itself, God talks about the, the pillars of wood that they're using to, to basically hold the tent up. They have to carve pomegranates and figs and all of these beautiful things. So God wants to meet with people. He does so in a garden in Genesis 1 and 2. Then he then, every time he wants to meet with his people, starting with the tabernacle and then moving into the temple, and even the way that Jesus does what Jesus does. Have you noticed how many times Jesus is in a garden when he's meeting with his disciples? Or how many times he's giving an abundance of food of some sort? All of this is tied together. And then we move to the very end of the story. And there's a brand new city that falls out of the sky, right? And God sets up his place amongst his people forever. And in the city is a tree whose fruit falls and feeds everyone. And then on top of that, there's an abundance that nobody has any need for anything. And God is meeting with people. People have significance. People have a a job that's valuable and important. And God is with them forever. There's no accidents here. You know, like you read the tabernacle. I I don't know about you. Every time I read the tabernacle section, I want to skim through it. I'm bored out of my mind. I'm just kind of like, why are we talking about the tabernacle? And it doesn't help that God describes how to build it. And then they mess up with the golden calf. And then God tells Moses, go ahead and carve this on some stones again. You know, I'll give them to you. You'll go for it. And then he proceeds to tell them the entire tabernacle instructions again. And you're like, I just read this a couple chapters ago. How many times can I read finely twisted linen (laughs) over and over again? Everything has finely twisted linen. Totally. But everything is very ornate, very beautiful. It's almost like an abundance. There's, There's a lot going on. And then there is fruit imagery everywhere. And you go, oh my goodness. God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to do so in abundance, and he's going to do it in a garden. It's no surprise that the tabernacle and the temple have these these connections. Right, right. And we see in other other religions of the time, their temples would have similar imagery with the idea of like fertility. Yes. You know, like there's fertility. And I think, I think there's an interesting discussion there about if everybody did originate from Adam and then Noah, they would have known these stories and you can see how they become perverted. Right. But it's clear here that that's not what God is doing. He's not promising fertility and he's not a fertility God to say, okay, you know, put these symbols of fertility in my tabernacle so that when you worship, you'll you'll get those. It's kind of the opposite. Instead of it being about us and what we're going to get out of it, God is setting up, this is where I'm going to meet you. And I think, I think Leviticus is a lot of like how you're going to come meet me. But here in Exodus, we see this is how God's going to come meet us. And I think, totally. that's, I think that's so important for us. It, it, there's huge implications of the fact that God wants to dwell with us. And right. as, a, as a New Testament, you know, as we live in the New Testament, you know, we can see that God lives now in the temple, not built by hands, but the temple of the human heart. Um, we just see how much God wants to dwell with his people. Like his imagers, he wants that relationship with them. It's almost like he had a plan, you know, almost. And it's this beautiful, ornate plan that he has put together throughout all of time and uh, that he always knew what he was doing and he always was going to get his way. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts on why specifically a garden? Like is God just, he's a a gardener 
and he plants a garden, then he makes garden imagery, and then he invites us into a garden at the end of time. Like, what specifically about gardens? Yeah, so personally, I think, and this is just my thoughts, this has nothing to do with, you know, it's just me. So just, I think it has to do with abundance, with and also with the need to care for something. And so the fact that God then handed his care over to human beings and said, I want you to run the show, this is your job. It's supposed to remind us of stewardship. It's supposed to also remind us of his abundance and his abundant nature of love and and grace and beauty. And I don't think there's any other way to do that besides a garden. Now, as you said, what happens between Genesis 1 and then the beginning of Exodus here, there's a lot of perversion of that concept. And really human history throughout all of time has just perverted God's good, beautiful green planet and made it something that it wasn't supposed to be. So instead of worshiping God and understanding that he has made the trees, we worship the trees and say, this is a God. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we, we sacrifice to the wrong things and we give up our hope and our desire for something else. And really the, the, the reason for the garden is that a garden is a place of fertility. It's a place that you're always going to have what you need. And in God's case, it's an abundant garden, right? Even when you talk about the, the land that they're about to enter, you know, as we get into numbers and they start to go into the land, they're going to say, oh, this is a land that is full of good things. We're going to have, we have food in abundance. Mm-hmm. So really this idea of God wanting to meet with his people in a garden. I also, last little point here, I think it also has to do with the fact that they're in a desert. <laughs> <laughs> so I think if you're going to strike a, a really strong contrast to human beings and they're leaving a desert land, going into a desert land that just happens to have a little green to it, you're going to go, what's the most amazing place that you could possibly go? Well, it's not the desert. So what's the better place in a desert? The exact opposite of that is a garden. Yeah. Yeah. And this reminds me of, I've, I've heard of a an idea or a theory, and I'm not super familiar with it, but basically the, the gist of the idea is that uh, in a theology of where we live, that God prefers us not to live in cities, that cities are places of evil. And one of the ways they get to it, and I don't think you're getting to this point, is to say that God created us to live in gardens. God uh, created gardens and gave us the uh, the mandate to work the soil. And then what do people do? They start building a city and a tower. And God tries to spread them out from there. And then all these places where, you know, um, where Cain sets up cities, you know, mm-hmm. God didn't want that. Mm-hmm. That's that's an interesting thought that God sees cities as evil. And, you know. Well, let me take that one more step because we did make reference to this briefly with the Tower of Babel thing a couple of weeks ago, but we didn't go into this part. I think one of the storylines of the scriptures dealing with redemption is God made us in gardens. We immediately proceed to cities. And at the very end of the story, God brings the garden into a city and redeems us fully. Hmm. So I think there is imagery happening there that we're supposed to notice and go, our God loves us so much that even though we're doing what he's not asking us to do, he will still even redeem that. And so, you know, Tim Keller will say things like at the very end of the book, the city is the place where we meet with God. And so that's why cities are important. I don't disagree with that statement at all. You know, who, who am I to disagree with the great Tim Keller? At the same time, I think that misses the real point of we're going from garden to city at the end. And what God does is he redeems humanity even from itself. 
-hmm. our worst inclinations, God pulls us back and says, this is what I want you to be. This is who I want you to be, which I think is pretty cool. All right. That's a good one. Thanks everybody for listening.